Hello, everyone, and welcome to Tops Talk, episode 34, and we thank you for listening in from whenever and wherever you are. I'm your host, Alex Birch. One of my favorite things about doing this podcast is being able to meet interesting people who happen to be lovers of collecting trading cards. And my next guest not only used to love collecting, he still references baseball cards to this day. Timothy Busfield has been in countless movies and TV shows, many of them iconic. Field of Dreams, 30-something, Little Big League, The West Wing, Revenge of the Nerds, the list goes on. And as he says, it has built him quite the crowded back of the proverbial baseball card. I was lucky enough to talk with Tim as he was signing cards for our 2016 Allen and Ginter baseball set, which is of course out in stores now. While he has talked about his metaphorical baseball card for quite some time, it was an honor to be in the room while he held his actual card for the first time. My boyhood dream was to be on a on a baseball card for tops. You know, we had, we, I have one of those stories of, as a 58 year old of my mom throwing away a gigantic <laughs> chest of baseball cards we'd been collecting since the fifties. I can only imagine what cards were in there. Um, but, uh, uh, you know, I played baseball, hardball in, into my forties and, um, had a chance to play pro baseball. So for me, and the analogies I use a lot in our business, especially with the younger actors, is you need to build a baseball card. So it, it means a lot to me uh, to be here at Tops. I, I was just getting to the relic sort of section over in the corner with all the stuff, and then you grabbed me to come up. So I'll, <laughs> I'll hit that on the way out. It looks kind of like a cool museum. Yeah, it's, uh, it's something special to have your face on a card. And like you said, I mean, you want to build that metaphorical baseball card but now you actually have your physical exactly it was card. metaphorical now i actually have i have a, I have a card that i'm signing that you know in a thousand years someone's going to get a penny for <laughs> well in a thousand years they'll probably get a lot of money for it yeah i'm going to go bury so, some of these yeah. out back exactly you there you Michigan. go they'll, it'll be a, a indiana jones in yes. a space suit so what type of collecting did you do when you were younger? Like, what, what did you like to collect? Well, I mean, it was baseball cards, really. And we just buy them. And a lot of it was for the gum, you know, and stuff. We just spent a lot of time in Michigan. You spent a lot of time at the lake. You spent a lot of time, you know, in, on water and hanging out and playing cards and going into town and hitting the local, you know, market and grabbing a bunch of baseball cards and stuff. And, uh, you know, that's what we did as kids. And I'm not much of a collector now. I'm, I've sort of never been one to be attached to things very much. So uh, a lot of items I've given up for auction, especially when I ran a, a, a nonprofit organization in, in Sacramento, my Revenge of the Nerds sweater, or my little big league jersey or my little big league bats and stuff like that. They all got auctioned for causes. So, sure. um, you know. I mean, that's great. I mean, that, it goes to a, a better cause. And for a lot of people who collect baseball cards for a, any period of time, really, they have that special player that they really liked to collect. Who is yours? Roberto Clemente. Uh, you know, I, I just I remember that up on, on my wall. Ted Williams up on my wall, you know, finding those cards and what they meant to me. Mickey Mantle I had up, you know. Uh, but Al Kaline... Hmm for me as a Detroit Tiger fan as a kid, which is really, you know, K-Line, huge, uh, my hero as as a kid. And I met him at a World Series, him and Bill Freehan, and we talked. Wow. And 
then I saw him again. I reached out and sort of touched his arm. He looked at me like, you want to punch me in the face? And I was like, what's that? And then I saw him again and somebody said, oh, this is Tim Busfield. And he goes, I know Tim. And now somehow he clearly not didn't like me. And so my childhood hero, my top baseball card right yeah. under my bunk, uh, to the wood of, the, of, the, uh, of my bunk bed with my brother up top and uh, I, 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 all of a sudden my hero, my boyhood hero, uh, didn't like me. And then I marry <laughs> Melissa Gilbert and I go to a tiger game and, uh, the vice president, uh, says, do you want to meet Al? I say, no, Al, I don't want to go in there. He doesn't <laughs> like me. My hero doesn't like me. And Al, Tim Busfield. And he goes, yeah. And I said, Al, this is my wife, Melissa Gilbert. And he jumps up and hits his knee on the desk and knocks over the trash can. He's like, oh, my God. we grew, I grew up on you. I mean, I didn't grow up on you, but my kids grew up on you. I just, I'm such a big fan. I can't. And he looks at me like, how did you do this? How did you get that? And then he looked at me like, maybe we should play golf or something. And I'm like... I'm looking at her like, I, I'm so indebted to you forever. <laughs> I have, my hero likes me. Uh, wow. So that was my, I don't know, what led me to that story. But Oh, well, I mean, that's that was your guy that you wanted he to collect. He was my card. That yeah, was, was my guy. card. So many people, when they when they look back at, at, at their collections, or maybe even not their collection, but maybe a card that they'll run across in an attic or a basement or whatever, it really takes them back to that time. Like you hold it and it just, and it really transports you. And when someone will look at your card, they'll immediately recognize you from a multitude of things. When, when people do recognize you, like what do they associate you with? Because you have a huge back of the baseball card. I gotta say, it's I'm really, it's uh, I'm, I'm very fortunate in that, you know, you can, I can kind of guess by what, what their age is. Mm. Um, but you know, the young kids, uh, fortunately, you know, you make these movies, you don't know they're going to last. And so, right. uh, for me, the little kids are, uh, are little big league. Right. Uh, um, and then the older kids and the pro baseball players, it's all revenge of the nerds, Really, all the pro baseball players <laughs> and, and little big league and field of dreams. Of course they love sure. the baseball isn't great in field of dreams, but they love that movie. Uh, and Little Big League, they like, you know, I'm Lou, and they'll go, Lou. But Revenge <laughs> of the Nerds, mostly, and I think it's just um, because there was total nudity uh, was the reason that the pro baseball players tell me they liked it. So, you know. Yeah, well, I just to think back on what you have been a part of, I mean, you've been a part of many different cult classics. Like, I mean, what is that like to be associated with not just one, but multiple cult classic either tv series or films you know it's uh uh it, it doesn't it's not i mean that takes time uh you know if you're gonna sign cards like this it's showing you don't get these in your first year you know to sign <laughs> yeah. one of these so you don't recognize really what you've done until much later on a, on a classic when something is still airing and running a lot 25 years later and people are saying that's my favorite movie um you don't know that at the time. Uh, at the, when we shot Field of Dreams, I didn't think anybody'd see it. Um, when Thirty Something came out, I said, "Change the name. No one's going to watch. Who would watch this show?" Um, uh, I begged them to change the name. Revenge of the Nerds was a great script, but I didn't think anybody would see it. And The West Wing, I knew was great. Uh, and Aaron's the best writer in the world. I'm, I, I think so. That's the only one at the time you think, "Wow, this is." This is this could last forever. The features you don't know. 
you know, you don't know how they're going to play in the long run. You can make a movie that makes $100 million at the box office in the year it was released and never really plays much in 10 years. It just doesn't fit with the time. So uh, I feel very fortunate to be a part of, you know, so many projects that have stayed in people's hearts for so long. And, uh, you know, it kind of says, hey, I belong in the club, you know. <laughs> Multiple clubs. I mean, the 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 classic television club and the classic TV club. I mean, you you you're a member in both very exclusive organizations. When you look at that back of the baseball card, when you see one of your credits, uh, what are you most proud of? Maybe, and that doesn't have to be the most popular one. But what is one that you? It was very difficult to get, maybe, or it just meant something extra to well, you. I think the most, first of all, there's a, there's, you know, uh, if you're fortunate enough to be, there's a lot of them, hopefully a lot of <laughs> stories that you would have, but you know, um, Revenge of the Nerds was, was the most fun because the contributions I made to that, that other than Poindexter had no dialogue in the script. They, he was the last nerd cast. They said, we have to have a violin player. So we want some nerdy guy and he had a different name and. I went in and did that, and then I offered up so many bits in the movie that Jeff Canoe wanted me around all the time. And that process, uh, I felt very much a part of uh, from the beginning, and therefore I feel very much a part of the success because a lot of the laughs I feel and yeah, for style sure. of what we did, I was involved with the team. You know, I wasn't an outsider. But I think the most, it's not anything in a movie and it's not anything in a play I, I th or, or a TV show. I think the thing that I'm most proud of is uh, creating uh, a corporation in Sacramento, California that w was professional actors touring the schools. Mm. And now going into our 30th year uh, as a multi-level theater from five-year-olds all the way up, uh, we're one of the tops in, in the world for... Uh, 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 longevity and the amount of people we reach 150,000 kids a year with professional theater and there's nobody else in the United States that's doing that and creating that because I wanted to make sure baseball we grew up seeing baseball we grew up watching it therefore we trust it yeah. we grew up watching football therefore we trust it we grew up going to the movies and watching TV therefore we trust it but nobody's growing up with the symphony the theater the ballet and opera and they don't trust it. And when they get to 27, people are going to them and saying, hey, will you support the arts? And the kids are saying, I don't I, yeah, I They have saw, no connection to it. They have no connection to it. So my plan of outreach uh, into the schools and then giving them a place to come when they're older has been a booming success. And we're now moving into a $26 million building in Sacramento. Um, the theater's going strong. And a lot of that young audience, by feeding the guppies, by making sure that those, the little fish are fed on the arts. Now, Sacramento, there was a, I swear to you, a cultural desert when I got there in 1986. There was no full-time professional theater in Sacramento. There was no full-time professional children's theater or any children's theater that toured the schools. So to be 30 years later and um, uh, the plan worked, feed the guppies, create the whale, you know? <laughs> and now those people are supporting the arts that have grown up on my theater are the art supporters. And there's professional theaters all over Sacramento. And I really believe it's because the kids grew up with it. So 
that whole idea of outreach when they first started building playgrounds and baseball fields and you know when that started happening uh two centuries ago and and that everybody's experienced baseball but not everybody's experienced the arts and i and i think i have a fix for that which <laughs> which i did clearly I, I mean that that's wonderful and uh and that's it's so valid what you're saying of you know just showing kids something when they're younger really getting them involved and have, allowing them to have fun with it really creates an identity within them and i and, and they can identify with what they're seeing. Yeah, and they might say, hey, how else are we going to get the, I mean, you know, you look at something and you say, that's what I want to do. Right. When we stumble on the things that we like, we, we, uh, we experience them. And then we say, I like that. Uh, we can dream about things and then experience them and say it wasn't for me. But the things that we like are generally because we've experienced them. So if kids don't experience the arts, they're never going to come back to it. And when you have a bunch of whiners across the country, which I understand, all the nonprofit complaining that nobody is coming to the symphony, nobody's coming to the ballet, but those particular companies do nothing to enhance their audience at the elementary level. They might go to play to, uh, you know, let's say they go to 5,000 kids. 50% um, of those kids might have a good time. 50% of those kids might return to the, to the art form when they're older. More than likely they won't. Uh, uh, that many because it's just not enough but if you go to 150,000 you have a much better chance of building an audience we're fortunate enough to be able to move to a much larger theater because we built from the ground up mm. uh, when uh, Al Kaline when he played baseball had to work in the offseason he's a Hall of Famer those guys all had to work because they, people had, baseball hadn't built itself to what it is right now but now everybody's experienced so much of that sport from when they're five they learn to run the bases they learn how the game goes they learn what three outs are they learn how to tag people they learn how to advance on bases even girls when they're five and six and seven have been learning it for maybe 50 60 70 years since it hit the elementary schools and maybe it hit the elementary schools before that but they trust it uh, they know the game. They can watch the game. Uh, they can sit down with the family. It's not, I don't get it, uh, because even kickball is the same sport as baseball in a way and played often on a, on a, on a baseball field, a playground. So once you've experienced that, now you see the amount of money these ballplayers are making. You might say that's a gross number, but when you see how much money baseball's making, it's not so gross. So uh, building... Um, entertainment for people uh, like that um, has to be experience, experienced by the audience. You see it in soccer over in Europe. Not so big here, but they've all experienced soccer. We were, we didn't, I didn't play soccer as a kid. I learned how to play a little bit of soccer and I'd play it, but I, I hadn't experienced it. But because they'd been experiencing it for so long over there, it's such a big deal because all those fans played soccer at one point and it's ingrained in the culture like it's, it's 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 in the roots of of what these families are about because they've done it yeah. this is the sport they've had for so long yeah well something that i mean that that you said that you experienced uh was not just being you know 
in the in love with baseball, but playing it. And mm-hmm. and and what was your history with with playing baseball? Well, you know, I started. My next door neighbor was drafted by the San Francisco Giants out of college, and he ran the little league and everything in East Lansing, Michigan. And my brother was a really fantastic baseball player, a 400 hitter in high school. So I grew up with basic skills. Then at 11, I started going to Mickey Owen Baseball School in Missouri, and by 15, I was a counselor at Mickey Owen Baseball School, and they had pro instruction there. So by the time I, I got out of high school, fundamentally, I was pretty sound everywhere. I couldn't, I could look like a ball player. I realized, this is when I realized I could act. I wasn't that good at baseball player, but I could make every team I went out for because they'd say, man, that guy looks like a pro. Um, uh, he didn't throw the ball very hard. He can't really hit, and he's really slow, but doggone it, he looks like a pro baseball player. When he puts on the uniform, man. Yeah, he... man, that guy, he just is a, you know, but nowadays I don't because I don't have this gigantic butt and thighs that these guys have. I was a tiny guy in the 70s. Um, but I, because of that and because I had to pitch – my first game in minor league ball, I pitched, but I usually played short or third. And then we had a good shortstop in high school, so I played third. And we had another shortstop where I played my semi-pro in high school ball in, in the south in Arkansas a little bit down there. And he played pro. And uh, so I played third and pitched. And then when I started the theater in Sacramento, when we had moved and built our adult theater, we shared a parking lot with a baseball field. And it's where the local semi-pro team, Sacramento Smokies, they practiced and semi-pro ball for anybody out there listening is really just the college leagues. It's the summer. It's where all the kids, when they come home from their NCAA or, or junior college experiences, they come home and it's the team they play for while they're living with their parents or whatever. And then some of the other kids that have stayed in town mixed with ex-pro ball players. And uh, I went up to the coach and I said, uh, can I throw batting practice? And he said, get out of here. <laughs> And I was out, so, all right, well, you can't park in my parking lot. And he said, what? And I said, that's my parking lot. I can't throw BP. You can't park in my parking lot. I said, oh, we'll move our cars, he says. <laughs> Larry Manuel, strongest man in baseball. That's what he called himself. <laughs> and then as I'm walking away, I hear him go, what, what? Field of what? Field of dreams? Field of dreams? Hey, kid, come back here. You got a cup? I got a cup. I got a cup. Thanks for worrying about my unit. Uh, really. Uh, um... Uh, all right, let's throw it. Let's come out. So we throw a little BP. He goes, hey, you're not so bad. That's all right. Maybe you come out on Sunday with a little publicity. We'll put on. We'll get some people to come out and watch in. So I said, all right. And I went out, and I didn't get the decision on my first game. But then uh, – uh, but I was – I went five innings and left after giving three uh, – three earned runs and struck out a few guys and uh, it was sore for the rest of my life. Um, <laughs> and then went back the next weekend and won and then won and then won and uh, – uh, somewhere, I don't know, around, I was around 18 and five or something like that. Nice. Uh, uh, I struck out nine of the first 10, uh, of, a of a really good team. Uh, I think it was the San Francisco seals or the, Ooh, the that seals, is a, that's a, that's a legendary team. And, um, uh, there was a scout there, uh, from the Indians. And, uh, I got a call the, the next day from my, uh, uh, manager and he said, "Hey, Saskatchewan of the Northern League," and he fed me to those guys. I want to give you five hundred a month to come pitch for them. <laughs> they want you in St. Paul next weekend, and I was like, oh. I told my wife, I said, I got the, call. I was thirty-five. <laughs> I said, I got the call. I got the call. I got the call. I'd wanted all my life at thirty-five, and she said, "That's great, but five hundred bucks a month? I can't buy a <laughs> pair of shoes for that." And I said, I know. And I had a movie coming up. I said, all right. 
and I and I I, I said I got to pass. But uh, I've always been able to carry that. You got the call, man. I got the call from my manager. You know, I can get you <laughs> five hundred a month from Saskatchewan. <laughs> Mark Von Olin, brand manager of entertainment. Is this the first time I've ever had you on? Oh, boy. I feel like I live <laughs> here, Alex. How are you? I'm good. I'm good. Glad to have you in the bunker. Um, as Chris Vaccaro said last week, which made me very happy, and it's kind of true. Um, well, we could certainly survive the Walking Dead zombie apocalypse in here. Yes. I think we're set. We've Especially, got trading cards till the end of time. Right. And, and on the sixth floor, it helps. It helps. Um, but... We're not here to talk about Walking Dead yet. That's right. But More to we, come. Yes. How about that for a tease? Instead, we're here to talk about something very special and new and first ever in Tops' Tops history. Mark, go into this and what it involves. Okay, this is uh, very exciting and also very simple. Um, this is the first time ever that we are doing a complete set of trading cards for Star Wars. Um, if you're a fan of baseball, if you're if you're a sports fan and listening to this podcast for some reason, um, you may have you may be familiar with like the complete sets that are done for baseball, um, and we used to do them for football as well. Uh, we decided that we were going to try out something new this year. Uh, given the success of Star Wars: The Force Awakens, we actually took our three sets: uh, the Journey to Star Wars: The Force Awakens that came out in September of 2015. Uh, Force Awakens Series 1 that came out last December and Force Awakens Series 2 that came out this March and put it all together into one box. Um, And so these are just the base cards. So there are 110 base cards from Journey, 100 base cards uh, from Series 1, and 100 base cards from Series 2. So your complete set will be 310 cards altogether. And of course, this being the first time that we're doing this, that's pretty special. But I'm sure that's not the only thing that uh, distinguishes this product from other ones. That's right. We wanted to make it uh, so that these cards would be different from what you found in market the first time around. Um, So we put a special foil stamp on there uh, that says Tops Complete. Um, Ooh, I like that. Exactly. So it's it's really neat looking. It's a beautiful foil stamp. Um, It's on the front of the card. uh, And and I think it gives it just something that a little bit extra special. Um, And it's all in one box, too. So it's got a beautiful collector box that goes with it. Um, And we made a very limited quantity as well. Um, It's only $50, and it's available on Tops.com. We can actually post the link um, in the notes of your podcast. Yes. Um, and it's on sale now. So uh, get going before it sells out. And as we get towards the end of the year, Mark, give folks a sneak peek at uh, what might be on the horizon for us. Yeah, we've got some awesome Star Wars products coming down the line. In fact, I would say the complete set is really our kickoff to Q4. Great gifting. So if you know someone who's a Star Wars fan who maybe didn't pick up the prior sets, $50, awesome gift. I wouldn't say it's a stocking stuffer. It's a little bigger, but, you know, maybe it's a full-size gift for under the tree. Yeah, that's like um, a <laughs> like a baseball sock kind of stocking yeah. stuffer. <laughs> you, you need yeah. a giant sock, exactly. Um, but for the rest of the year, we've got some really fun products coming out. Rogue One Mission Briefing hits on September 30th, and that's the preview to the next film, Rogue One, and it's got content from across the saga, 74 autograph signers, a lot of fun. We'll talk about that more in depth soon. And very much similar to uh, the journey to Force Awakens, which we did last year. Exactly. Same sort of structure. Um, we've also got the proper Rogue One set coming out, day and date with the film, which is December 17th, where you'll see um, real stills from the film and a whole bunch of exciting inserts. 
We've also got Star Wars Masterwork that comes out in November. Our high-end set returns with on-card autographs from about 70 signers. Um, some really exciting uh, items in there as well that we'll talk more about as we get deeper into the year. Um, high Tech also returns for Star Wars. That was such a success last year that we had to bring it back. Those are those beautiful plastic cards also with on-card autographs. Yeah, I love High Tech so much. It's, it's honestly, I can't believe we haven't done it before. Like last year being the first, I was kind of like, how have we never done Star Wars High Tech before? Great idea. Well, it's a tough technology. And, you know, that and with such a, a complex uh, topic such as Star Wars, it, it, it makes perfect sense once it's mm-hmm. put together. But as you and I both know, and as folks out there might not know, it's you know, it takes a lot to put something like that together from both sides. And so, but I mean, what a, what a job well done last year. And, uh, and I'm so glad that uh, we're able to do this again. Yeah, that's, that one is a beautiful set. You're gonna, even this year blows away last year. One of the movies that came out after, and, and, and what I alluded to in the, in the open was, was Little Big League, which we talked about for a little bit. But, I mean, that is such a, to me, one of the most underrated sports movies of all time. And, and I love that movie dearly. And one of the reasons for that is because of the wacky concept that it has. And it really wasn't, like, it was a, it was a pretty authentic baseball experience when you talk about the actual playing on the field. And that matters to me for, as a baseball purist. And also seeing actual ballplayers from that time in the movie is a thrill. So who, who did you spend time with of the major leaguers? Oh, my God. Well, I mean, I was the, the lead guy outside yeah. the kids, so I really was able to drive a lot, you know, of stuff going on. And, and uh, you know, that at that time, I you know, 30-something had been, you know, fairly hot and had been in the Nerds movies, and you could feel that that was starting to build. Right. Um, Hands down, the best baseball in any baseball movie. Yeah. There's no, there's not, there's no way you'll ever compete with the quality. I was the worst player in it, uh, and and uh, and I played along. I was a good player. Uh, I, the um, Ken Griffey Jr. I spent a lot of time with, uh, uh, so much so that on one of his books, I'm, you know. There's a picture of myself and uh, Luke Edwards and him in the middle of it. He awesome. had a great time. He had a great time. Um, there was, an, I'll tell you, an experience with, with uh, Junior that was really interesting. We're shooting a, a scene where he, he's supposed to hit a ball into the upper deck. And Andy Scheinman says, you know, Junior, it'd be really great if uh, the camera's behind home plate, if you could hit a ball uh, up in, in the upper deck over the baggie mm-hmm. in like yeah. section 218 or whatever it was. <laughs> And uh, he goes, okay. And so I'm going to take a few couple of cuts. And he goes, okay, I'll take a couple. I don't need much, a couple of cuts. And yeah. So I'm down at first base, and the first one was like a scud missile. I mean, right by me, I'm like, I'm not. I backed up, said, like, where can I be in the shot so it won't look fakey? Because I've never seen anything like that yeah. before. It, was a, it wasn't a frozen rope. It was just some, it was nuclear. Um, and then he goes, I'm ready. Uh, and so pitch comes, bam, upper deck. Right where they said, yeah. uh, I was like, what? <laughs> what was that? And then all the director comes out and the, uh, the director of photography and the AD and there's a little huddle around home plate and I run down, you can see he's talking to him and I run down to hear what they're saying to him. And yeah. They say, hey, it was phenomenal. It was great. 
problem was you could hit it in section 220. Oh, come on. <laughs> and, and if you could just hit it over, we left the ball left the frame. And we want to keep it in the frame. He goes, oh, all right, no problem. Uh, and I look at him and I'm thinking, if they ask me if I was able to do that, I couldn't shoot it out of a cannon and hit the spot he hit. Uh, and, and then he goes, okay. And he looks down at the bat and sort of takes his thumbnail like there's a little chip. Like the bat might be a little bit broken. Uh, and bangs the handle on the ground a little bit and it looks and I see and there's a chip. I mean, it's a little, the bat's broken. Uh, not severely, not where it's unused, but certainly not the, you know, there's yeah. when you have a crack that goes with the grain on something, it's the bat's useless unless you put something on it, I would think. And I go, you can change that bat. They go, let's go, let's go, we gotta go, we gotta go. And I'm like, you can get another bat. He goes, no, I gotta go, we gotta go. And I said, you can take get another bat. He goes, no, <laughs> this will be okay. <laughs> so I go back down there, run down there, and with a broken bat, he takes the next pitch and puts it up in section 218. Oh, my God. And I, not everybody, nobody knew it was broken but me. Because uh, the director in the eight was like, we gotta go, we gotta go. And he looked at it, and he just didn't want to take a few seconds, but took the very next pitch and hit it right to the very That's mark. That's amazing. And I could, with a fungo from second base, I could hit 50 balls and I probably wouldn't hit one where he hit it. Um, that was a great experience. And you know, there were Mickey Tettleton was there yep. with the Tigers and we had uh, 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 Tim Raines uh, woke up uh, and, in a freezing day in Chicago and hit a ball out right away. Paul O'Neill did the same thing. <laughs> you know, um, there's no way on earth I could have hit Randy Johnson. I, and the thing a lot of people, you know, I don't know why they would know it, but I'm not a left-handed hitter. I, Swing, I hit wiffle balls left-handed because I can get backspit on them for home run derby. Um, and if I hit a wiffle ball right-handed, I just hit, you know, I'm not a big guy, so I never swung for home runs. I was a singles hitter and, you know, line drive hitter. and uh, So that's no good for wiffle ball, but I got a really good, I could imitate Reggie Jackson and Will Clark. And <laughs> so I thought Will Clark would be a nice swing here. So I modeled lose swing after Will Clark because I felt that would give me the most loop and make me look like I could hit a ball. And Randy Johnson comes in and he throws a pitch to me that I swing and miss by a yard. <laughs> and he calls the director out to the mountain. Director runs out to the mountain. Director kind of says, looks at the director. And director says, stay there, Tim, at home plate. Um, he runs out to the to the mound, talks to the, uh, uh, Randy Johnson, and then nods and kind of shakes his head, comes back to me, and I said, what was that? And he said, Randy Johnson just said, when I go to New York, Boggs and Mattingly are taking themselves out of the game, and Busfield's going to hit a ball off me? <laughs> <laughs> That's a great point. <laughs> yeah, I'm like, yeah, dude. And he, I mean, it was the first one was like a John Crock when he threw to him in an all-star right. like right he threw it you know so i ran out there and said do you have is there any way you can throw four seams same speed same place maybe about 78 yeah i can you know all i need to do is get some so eventually we had to bring in michael papa john who played college ball at lsu and <laughs> you've seen in a million movies to sort of underhand a shot to me and we did movie magic and sure they want and they had a couple one from behind that looked like on contact it might be going in a direction <laughs> but um it was the, probably the worst professional day of filming I've ever had because, you know, there wasn't athletes don't have the etiquette of, you know, in, in the theater and a film. If the star is up there struggling, nobody's going to give him a hard time. He's real quiet. He's a star of the movie. Yeah. But when you got a bunch of extras and a bunch of baseball players and strike one, 
I'm like, oh. And number two, and I'm like, this is impossible. A left-handed, non-left-handed hitter actor hitting Randy Johnson, who says, I don't know how to throw four seams over the top, the middle of the plate. Yeah. 78. He's just like, I don't, I'm just, I don't know where it's going. Is what he would say, especially to slow it down for me. He probably had control, at, better control at 98. Absolutely. Than he would have had at 80. As a former pitcher, I'm sure you can understand that, where it's, well, it's, it's not aiming, you know? Yeah, the release, what you have to do to hold up, and yeah. what that does to your, to your uh, you know, everything motor skill-wise, yeah. to hold up on the ball is, uh, you know, more difficult to locate often than just, you know, throwing it at a normal rhythm and pace. And yeah. he doesn't even warm up at the speed I wanted him to throw. It's, you know, what he would probably <laughs> throw to his kids. Yeah, I mean, and well, one of my questions is, why do they turn you around, hit lefty? Well, I, I couldn't. They didn't want. They wanted the left-handed guy, and they did. They needed the. They needed uh, a Griffey to go up and get it, pull it off the, climb the wall. Mm -hmm. The baggie's too big, yeah. and they wanted the. They liked the left-hand swing. They wanted it to go the other way because in all the movies, it'd always be a pulled ball, and they wanted it to go. Like, you know, slightly the, left center. They wanted it to go the other way. <laughs> yeah. And they, you know, they, they had a, I think they just felt that dynamically it would be stronger. And, you know, it was a, they liked, they really liked the swing. I can, again, fake like I can play baseball. Uh, and, you know, it got me in that movie. Could I actually hit Randy Johnson or do any of the things? No, not at all. <laughs> but you got to fake. Hey, you always look like a ball player. I can, you have to look like that's one of the things you learn when you're young if you want to if you have to look like a ball player you could tell I was asked Rod Carew if I could throw batting practice to the California Angels and at the time I was playing semi-pro baseball and you know I had been playing all my life and he said let's play catch just for a second I threw him one ball he said sure you can throw BP and threw it to <laughs> Di Sarcina and Edmonds and uh, Salmon and these guys said that was the best BP ever because I was airing it out. Yeah, I wasn't throwing batting practice speed. I was like four seams over the top with a lot on nice. it because I knew it would be even then uh, uh, just right. And uh, I, they just, they must have hit 15 home runs between the three of them. And Rod Carew came up and said, 25 bucks a day. I'll give you 25 bucks a day to be the batting practice speed. Football is here, of course, but baseball is in the stretch run. Meaningful games are being played here in September and soon to be October. And what better way to follow along than by downloading the Topps Bunt app? All you have to do is head to either the app or Google Play store and you'll be on your way to collecting all different types of cards within the comfort of your own home or office. I won't tell anybody. You can not only collect these cards, but you can play them in daily and weekly fantasy contests within the app. This postseason will have all kinds of prizes, including physical ones like signed cards and memorabilia. And the best part about collecting cards on your phone or tablet? Your parents can't throw them out. Once again, Topps Bunt is found in the Google Play or App Store, and you can download it for free. Having a mobile card collection is only a tap away. Field of Dreams, I mean, a wildly different type of baseball movie. And a lot of the time, people don't even really call it a baseball movie. It's it's more than that. Yeah, I don't think I don't think of it as a baseball movie. Uh, uh, I really don't. The Natural is a baseball movie. Uh, uh, the Lou Gehrig 
story, you know, the pride of the Yankees. Mm. That's a baseball story yeah. and still a human story. Um, I think Field of Dreams is a story about is a is a father son story yeah. and the the sacred relationship of a parent. Don't don't think you can blow off a parent and not have to deal with it later. You know, work it out. Don't let time go by without working it out because it's a sacred relationship, your dad. And the 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 he'll carry it, you'll carry it. Um, but you'll you know he wanted that back, and that's what's the beautiful thing about that movie. And baseball is only a device. Interesting. Our baseball in it isn't very good. Uh, you know, uh, uh, Kevin, uh, probably the best natural athlete in the movie. Uh, he's a guy that can do anything really well sports-wise. And um, he, was, he was better than all the ball players, the, except for the extras that they might have used that were local ball players or semi-pro ball players. But the, the most difficult move... I think in the movie is actually done by me, who's not a baseball player. And that, uh, you know, it's always um, good as a director, being a director, to let the actors decide what, you know, to commit to something. So it comes from them. It's always better than when they do what you tell them. That can get a little dicey when you're doing stunts because, you know, the director doesn't want to get, he's tried to talk you into something dangerous. So, like a chump. Uh, he, hey, Tim, you know, we're, yeah, I want to put you in this piece where we're shooting the, the ball players and, and maybe there's some way that you don't see them and can kind of walk in front. Like, oh, I could, gosh, you know, gee, I could walk right in front of home plate and they could throw the ball and swing the bat and I can act like I don't see them. And he was like, that'd be great. And then I thought to myself, what did I just do? <laughs> what did I just do? So I walk out there and I think, okay. So we're, I'm going left to right, camera's panning with me, and this guy's going to throw a fastball, and this guy's going to swing. And the swinging wasn't a problem. I, if he didn't let go of the bat, I knew I was going to be fine because I knew that the two-dimensional film world that looks like 3D, I could be far enough away it wasn't going to hit me. Right. But the guy on the mound, I couldn't account for. <laughs> uh, the guy who had to throw the ball. So the first couple of takes that went by... Um, Everybody respected me so much because I didn't, the crew loved it because then I could feel it as I was walking across and I wasn't really paying attention to the guy swinging the bat, but my peripheral vision was on the guy throwing the ball and I could see where he was in his motion and he had played semi-pro ball where he played pro ball for Lasorda in the minors and when Lasorda was in uh, coaching in the minors and I, he threw the pitch, the guy swung and cut and everybody applauded and thought, whoa, that was you. how would you do that? And I would freak out. And it was so close to your head. And I was like, yeah, I can kind of do it. I was okay. And then, okay, we're going to go again. And I'm like, why are we going? <laughs> really? We're going to go? Why are we going again? I didn't get, that didn't hit me in the head like I thought it was going to. And the director goes, hey, Tim, listen, we're panning with you. Uh, but by the time the camera picks up the picture, he's in his motion. And we want to see him start his motion. And I said, well, that's just going to compress everything a lot. And you're forcing him just to rock and fire, which is going to give up a lot of his control. Uh, <laughs> uh, and they were like, yeah, uh, no concern for my physical well-being whatsoever. <laughs> and I said, right, okay. Here we go. So I run out to the mountain. I say, hey, can you, um, you're going to have to rock and fire. Probably when I get to about this point, you can't. Don't start your wind up here. Wait till I get. And so I'm walking. And I'm walking, and I, you know, I see Kevin, Amy, 
wave at him, yeah. hey, whatever, and then boom, the the pitch comes and I at so and the bat and I get about two steps and I shimmy and I stop and I buckle uh. and everybody laughs and I go, I'm sorry, and then I then I said let me go again and then I said can I add a high? Now that it was all happening so quick, I thought a button and he said Phil said sure add a high, and the next take I think it was the fourth take is the one we used, uh, but. If you were a non-baseball player and you really weren't comfortable on a baseball field and didn't trust other ball players, it would be really difficult to be able to do that because the confidence, the you know, people are afraid. You have to, you have to have been hit by so many baseballs that you're not afraid of it, uh, and still give it respect. Uh, and that that required a lot. And there weren't really a lot of ball players that were actors in the movie. Um, that probably could have pulled that off. <laughs> That's something that I don't think anyone would be comfortable with, even with practicing major leaguers. That takes some moxie from you. <laughs> so hats off to you, sir. For being stupid enough to, to, to say, to pitch it. That was what was really dumb <laughs> is that they, he just lured me in like catching fish with a bare hand. Just let yeah. me nibble on the fingers and then he started to add me. <laughs> Well, what's funny is that that's actually kind of a good representation of the movie. I mean, for a while, the movie seems like a baseball movie, but it's then it's not. I mean, it's it's something more. And when you worked on that on that film and then and you ultimately saw it, what was that like seeing that movie for the first time when it was in its completion? Um, You know, it was a really great experience. I had not seen the completed version with the music and everything. I'd I'd, uh, I hadn't seen it. And and. um, you know, I knew in the movie I had the the great thing about that movie is that what you're looking for is in a, a part that if you're gonna you want to be all the way through a movie as much as you can naturally if you're not the lead in a movie but to have a turn uh, especially as a bad guy to have a turn um, really helps you establish how you're gonna play the role um, because you know it was clear to me that the audience had to leap over me to get to Kevin. And that was my first job as the uh, antagonist or the bad guy is to get the audience to commit to the good guy. That's just fundamentals uh, in storytelling. And in a sci-fi world, you need that character for the audience to jump over so they embrace the sci-fi aspects of it. And I I knew that that was just going to require commitment. Um, But the end of the movie, in the way, really required an energy. to, because the movie is, you know, it, it is a gentle movie uh, for the most part. There's a couple of uh, James Earl Jones goes after, you know, Kevin with a baseball bat at one point. <laughs> yeah. There's a couple of other action moments, but for the most part, it's a the hot dog it, incident. The hot dog incident has to happen at <laughs> yep. the end, and that you need a bunch of energy to earn the moment with the dad, and. When I went to the screening of it, it, I think we it was at the Academy is where they did the opening at the, uh, the, the Film Academy Theater. And I walked in and was by myself and Kevin was like, hey, Timmy, over here, over here. Uh, and he was in the back and said, come sit with me, come sit with me. Uh, and he'd seen it. Uh, and, and he turned to me and looked at me and said, you're so good in this movie. Oh, uh, nice. uh, you you so good. You're so important. I'm so glad it was you. Um, and it's the same thing he said to me last year when we were at the 25th anniversary and we saw the movie in a, a, a drive-in <clears throat> environment with the out in right field. Right. And they put up a big screen and you, we watched it with 6,000 people. And um, 
I, I'm really proud of, uh, I don't think acting wise, I'm necessarily, uh, I'm not as charactery or maybe it's not my best work as an actor, but story wise, game team wise, um, I really, I feel good about uh, bringing the energy where it needed to be at the end to help earn the ending with the dad. Uh, uh, if that's too soft, then you need to kind of go up and have all that happen to come down. And I also got to learn to imitate Burt Lancaster. <laughs> I played the bad guy, Vera Cruz. Stole the picture. Stole it. <laughs> oh, Burt Lancaster was so good in his limited uh, he was role. G- Oh, he was amazing. So and, you know, he's a, he's a, those guys are all jokers. The old school guys are all really practical jokers because they would make so many movies a year back in the old days. Yeah. <clears throat> and um, he said to me, uh, on the first day, he says, uh, we're about to sh- shoot a scene. He says, yeah, son, take my coat. And I look, I think, does he, does he think I'm with the wardrobe? <laughs> I'm like, you know, over here, can we get, get wardrobe? Can you, here's Mr. Lancaster's coat. And they go, okay. And he says, uh, yeah, son, you're in my eyeline. I said, no, Mr. Lancaster, I am your eyeline. I play Mark in the movie. And I was at the read-through with him, and he was just, messing with me but i thought oh my goodness Bert lancaster doesn't know i'm in the movie uh he's crazy or senile or just mean and it turns out he was just mean and funny <laughs> it was a, it was a great experience and yeah. i'd been imitating him since i was a little kid so as a matter of fact i was in east lansing michigan i went and saw some swashbuckler movie with Bert lancaster when i was about six by myself walked downtown, came home, sat down dinner with my brother and sister and mom and said, I'm going to be a movie star. Of course, then I got into college. I said, I don't be, I'm not going to do TV. I don't want to be a movie star. I'm just going to be a theater actor because that's what we're like when we're in college. We sort of snub our nose <laughs> at commercials and TV and movies that were too pure. And then we end up doing York Peppermint Patty commercials and <laughs> TV movies about killer cats you got to make it, man. I got, yeah, you got to. <laughs> you got to. They're on the baseball feed. card. I got my, I yeah. got my, on my baseball card are some subpar seasons. I might have a good <laughs> postseason. I got a nice <laughs> roster of postseason yeah. below. I've been in a lot of Emmy Award and Academy and, yep. and, and Tony and all that stuff. Uh, but I got a couple of seasons, you know, with a lot of at-bats, with no <laughs> dingers, uh, really a lot of Ks. Uh, I got some bad seasons on my baseball card. I might have a couple asterisks that might be for leading the league in strikeouts uh, <laughs> in there, you know. But you know what's I, funny, though? It's very similar with actors and ball players in the respect of if you win a championship, you'll be remembered. And even if you were just in Field of Dreams, you would have this incredible following just just from that. And to me, in my head, like, that's a championship. <laughs> like, that, because of the longevity of that film and that the importance of that film. And even when you think of a guy like Ted Williams, who's in the Hall of Fame, he, his batting average was not 1,000. So you don't obviously have to make – you don't have to hit a home run on every swing, just like you don't have to, you know, star in every great movie of the year. But the, the important handful – really does make an impact on so many people's lives and obviously on, on the actor, actress, him or herself. When you look back to your TV experience, mm-hmm. because we've obviously talked at length about your movie experience, but your TV experience, A, how does that differ production-wise 
from movies, as in how the, the longevity of the TV and also just how shots are done, how, how episodes well, are done? First of all, if you're going to do a, uh, a much more selective about a movie I would take, um, because they live forever. Movies of the week, they open and close in one night, and they'll probably never be seen ever again except for at 2 o'clock in the morning. So <laughs> for the money, you go and do a TV movie. If you're going to want a baseball card and a career that people would say, gosh, there's a lot going on, I think you got to turn down a lot of movies. Mm. In TV, you have to pick a character that you think you can make 100 episodes of. You want to be able to be there for the long run. So your mindset, to me, approaching all three of those is different. Um, so with a show, I never, <clears throat> with a movie, I could be a, a, an outrageous character like Poindexter. But in a TV show, I don't think I could make Poindexter last 100 episodes, right? Yeah. So with like 30-something in the West Wing, I felt that I'd created characters that could be interesting over a run. And West Wing was seven years, and 30-something uh, was, was four years, and figuring out how to create a character which will be interesting to play and interesting for the audience in TV, uh, I think requires being a little closer to home. The actual physical production is the same. Um, you might not shoot as many pages on a movie uh, uh, because of the, the, the wit and the, the size of the frames. If you're gonna shoot a TV show, you can, you're shooting in the, especially when I started on a four by three box that was never very big. Uh, 20 inch TV back when I was growing up was a big deal. Um, nowadays the small screen's gotten bigger and the big screen's gotten smaller, but the small screen still doesn't reach the scale uh, of when you're at a big screen feature. So when you set up a shot in a movie, you're seeing so much and you're seeing so far that you have to light so much more and you have to art direct so much more. And there's so much more to make sure that you are, that the frame is what you want, that you can't shoot a big wide shot and get that big wide shot in a big feature film without taking time. Uh, there's so much stuff to get out of the shot, unless it's just a shot of the Tetons, you know, uh, <clears throat> there's just too much in the frame. So you tend to not shoot as much a day as you do in TV. TV, we shoot eight pages in a day. Uh, a movie, we generally shoot three pages in a day. Uh, a soap, they shoot 60 pages in a day <laughs> because there's no sure. wide shots. It's right. all close-ups and yeah. it's all inside and it's all pre-lit. Uh, features are a little bit more difficult. Mm. And when you're a part of something for so long, but I mean, obviously Field of Dreams and Little Big League and Revenge of the Nerds, I mean, the, the, the longevity of the impact that they had was, is obviously very well noted, but the actual longevity of a TV series like West Wing, seven years. I mean, what was that like working with the same people for seven well, years? Well, I was in and out. I only did actually about 30 episodes in the seven years. So I was producing other shows at the same time. Mm -hmm. I produced Ed, which shot out here in New Jersey, right. and I produced uh, Without a Trace during that run and then went right from the end of that into Studio 60 for Sorkin as mm -hmm. a producer, director, actor. So... I, had, I was doing other things. I was not a regular on the show. I was there from the third episode to the second to last episode, but it was really easy. Um, 
it was a great experience. You know, I have so I have uh, as as sort of ball players, you know, actors as ball players. Um, our camaraderie is very similar. We're team players. There's a lot of trust there, uh, and everybody is was, you know, so kind. And Martin Sheen all the way down. Allison was a just the best acting partner uh, you could ever ask for, and Martin was great. And I, I was friends with Whitford. I'd introduced him to Aaron uh, when he came into A Few Good Men. I did A Few Good Men on Broadway. I played the mm-hmm. Tom Cruise role, and I brought Brad in to be my understudy and. Uh, introduced him to Aaron, and so he was a buddy, and got to know Rob Lowe and uh, Schiff, and I play golf with all the time. It was a good team, but they hadn't had anybody on that show that had done long runs on TV. And Aaron wanted me in the dugout. Mm-hmm. He wanted me out there on the field so they would they could go to me. And early on, Aaron wouldn't write the script. He couldn't. He he wrote every word. And he was writing Sports Night in the first season. Mm, that first night. year of the West Wing, what people don't know, here's what a genius Aaron Sorkin is. He wrote 22 episodes of Sports Night and 22 episodes of the West Wing in the same season and won it all. He didn't win everything for Sports Night, although nominated for Best Writing, but he won Best TV Show, Best Writer, um, Best Writing, and Best TV Show, uh, and wrote 44 episodes of television by himself that year i don't think that's ever been done when you want to look at a baseball card when you want to look at in our business the perfect season i would say it's aaron sorkin uh 1999 or 2000 whenever west wing whenever that first year was I think 99. second year of sports night first year of west wing 44 episodes of tv and took home the gold um that and you know it's interesting i was down in the the I love relating actors to athletes when I'm teaching, talking to young actors. Mm-hmm. Um, uh, when uh, I was on the field with the, the Tigers a few years ago, when I went down and had Al Kaline finally like me because of my wife, because <laughs> uh, he liked her, and I went down the field and was hanging down there, and, and um, Jimmy Leland was there. And, you know, I, I love picking brains. I love doing sort of what you're doing in a way and interviewing. And that's how I've learned so much. And I said, you know, what's it like when you got Cabrera, who is probably the best two strike hitter that I've ever seen, who goes with the pitch. He'll even shorten up and go to no stride. He just lifts up his left heel when he gets down in the count, uh, widens his stance. He makes those adjustments that you would look for. And you got uh, uh you know, Alex Avila, uh, who hit 300 his rookie year by going the other way and became a dead pull hitter. I said, how do you, how do you, what do you say to these young ball players when they won't work the field, when they don't hit the ball where it's pitched? And he said, you sign them by their baseball card. I said, what do you mean? He said, whatever they are on their baseball card is what they're going to be. So if they're a lifetime 280 hitter who strikes out 150 times a year and hits 41 doubles, three triples, 16 HRs, that's what they're going to be. And you don't teach them at the big league level. You don't teach them new things at the big league level. You You put a squad out there based on their baseball card. Thanks for listening to Top Stock, and we hope you hear us again soon. You can subscribe to us on iTunes, Audioboom, SoundCloud, and Stitcher, and you can find us on Twitter at Top Stock. 
If you have any questions or comments or would like to tell us your collecting story on a future episode, email us at topstalk at tops.com. Special thanks goes to Clay Lorasky, Leanne Minutoli, Susan Lejudai, Kevin Moody, Mark Von Olin, and Timothy Buzzfield. <laughs>